Welcome back to another brand new episode of Learning As I Go, sponsored by British Triathlon. Today's a little bit of a nostalgic episode for me and a really special one because I'm welcoming into the studio a really good friend of mine, Chris Fountain. You might recognize Chris from Hollyoaks and Combination Street back in the day when soaps were the biggest thing on TV and he had such a beautiful career until one day he pretty much got cancelled. One event led to him losing his job on Combination Street and his whole career falling down. And ever since then, he's been trying to come back and fight his way back and he's finally doing it. He's in the mix with some big auditions now and he's just overcome a stroke as well and ran his first marathon. This guy is coming back super strong and today he shares his story. So get ready to sit back and learn another life lesson with Learning As I Go. We've got him in the building, No, It's been a long time coming, this, hasn't it? You know what, mate? This one's a little bit nostalgic and, and, yeah. and special for me because I don't know if you know this. I think you do know this, but I've always looked up to you. I, you know, I, I <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not tall enough for you to look no, up to me, mate. No, but you have, though, because I remember when I, as a kid and I was Ryan's younger brother and I was going into this soap world that you guys were all in and, yeah. like, everyone used to knock around together, didn't they? Like, mm -hmm. the Hollyoaks boys, uh, the Corrie boys, the Emmerdale boys. But you, Chris, were like... The golden boy, the golden child. You were, <laughs> you were Justin, mate, from Hollyoaks. Yeah, Justin, man. What a character that was. It was such a, it was such a weird time that for me. Like, because I don't know if you know this, but like, I went straight from high school. Yeah. So I was in like my GCSE year of high school. Yeah. And I got Hollyoaks halfway through that year. So in the same time, I was doing my revision, my my GCSE stuff. I was going back and forth to work at the show. Wow. At the time. It was such a, a weird thing. Like I'd be in school with all my mates, like who I've been with since like year seven. And then I'm going on like a film set and like people started recognizing me and then people started recognizing me at school. And it was just a bizarre situation. Like at the time, I didn't really realize it because I was like, I was in the moment. Yeah. But looking back, like how long, how long ago was it now? I started there in 2005, I think. And you were involved in some massive storylines yeah. as, as Justin, like, I'm just laughing because I remember when we went on a night out once and I, and I was, this is cringy. <laughs> you called me Justin. Yeah, we was on a night out with Chris, right? And every now and then, because I'm- because It was a football trip, wasn't it? It was a football trip. Yeah, yeah. Every now and then I'd slip up and I'd call like Jack Shepard, David. Or, <laughs> everyone calls and, Jack and everyone, David. And everyone would just ignore it. But I called Chris Justin by accident and he turned around and went, did you just call me Justin? <laughs> I had a bit more about me then. Like before, I had a bit, not, not an attitude, but like, I was a bit full of myself. Yeah. I've mellowed, I've mellowed my, like a lot over the years. Do you know what? I wanted to talk about that. We will talk yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, of course. But yeah, you were like, honestly, the soaps were huge, right? Like, especially Corey and Emmerdale. And Hollyoaks back then had its own identity. Yeah. But you kind of transcended that because of the storylines that you had. You it were was, like yeah, so big from that soap. It was such a, it was a mad one. I think like Hollyoaks had a real bad rep for a long time. Mm. And people kind of, because there were a lot of good looking people in here, everyone kind of went, oh, it's not, it's just a load of models. Like, mm. and then... I think I might I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure it was Brian Kirkwood who came in, who took over as the exec producer. And he kind of earmarked like a few characters to kind of take the show forward. Unfortunately, mm. I was one of them characters. And he kind of transformed the show really. And he made it a lot grittier. The storylines were a little yeah. bit more like they weren't so outrageous and they were more believable. And I was super fortunate that I got put in a I was for for probably about three or four years, I was involved in everything that went on. Mm. And 
I'll never forget going, like it used to be a joke to us lot going to the soap awards because we never win anything. Mm. We just basically turn up, get absolutely like smashed. Sexiest male, maybe. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> I didn't even win that. EastEnders got it. But um, we turn up and we just treat it as a party because we knew we weren't going to win anything. And then I did the, the storyline with Becca, with Ali Bastian, with, with the teacher getting with the student. And there was a real shift at that point. Like everyone was involved. Like I was doing loads of yeah, I was doing loads of interviews with the press and TV. And that storyline ran for quite a real long period of time, and it got so much attention. And then we got nominated for best storyline at the the Soap Awards, and we won it. And like neither of us had prepared any kind of speech because we were like, well, we're not not going to win. We're in Hollywood. I don't know if it was the first one. I think it might have been one of the first, yeah. but it definitely, I'm not sure if it was the first one, but I made an absolute dick of myself on the on the stage because none of us prepared anything. Right. So we got up and I was just like, thanks, thanks mom, <laughs> thanks everybody in the cast. And that kind of snowballed then. And then after that, I fortunately again went on to win Best Actor, which is a like this a huge, huge proud what, moment What storyline was that for? It wasn't a particular storyline. It was just, I think it was over the over the year. I, don't, I mean, I did so many different things on that show. Like I was, I was a bad boy, and then I got sent to rehab, and then yeah, I came out. Were, there was like a drug storyline. Yeah, there? there was a drug story. You were like like a red outfit. Or yeah, yeah. I got, I got like sent to bed or something. Yeah, yeah. I got sent to, um, I got sent off like in the storyline. I got sent off to this like naughty kids camp, and yeah, it was crazy. We were shooting in some um, like army base near Liverpool, and it was just wild, mate. Like I think I was probably like 15, 16 then, and. Like as an actor, I always wanted to do films and I always wanted to be like in these big dramas and stuff. And at that point, I really felt like I was living that dream because we were on this mad location in the middle of nowhere. We had trailers and all this stuff. And it was just such a, a crazy experience for, for like a teenager to go through. So how old were you when you first got your, your role? 15. One thing that shines through with you, Chris, is like some, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, some Hollywood stars were plucked out of model agencies mm. and just basically, some of them were like that. Whereas with you, I've always classed you as a serious actor. I and, I, and I see that in terms of like, when you're doing your audition pieces now, I've seen yeah. like some of your, tra- like your videos that you do and everything else. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you're amazing at accents and, and Adam's a little bit like this. Adam's Adam, incredible, man. Like, like, I like don't, you I don't think... You take, you take it serious as a craft. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think I've got a, I've got a huge... I mean, this was my first love. I mean, I've got, like, you know, I'm like with music and DJ mm. and stuff. Like, I, I love that. But this was my first, like, genuine, like, I was really interested in it. I'd, I'd watch films. I'd go to watch plays. Yeah. I'd, I'd read scripts. I'd read, read all this stuff. And I do have a deep, like, a deep care for, like, the, mm. the craft. And even, like, you know what I'm like, mate, but when Instagram kind of became like a big thing, like I grew up in a time where there wasn't any social media. It makes me feel like super old mm-hmm. when I say that, but that was kind of frowned upon, like in, especially in Hollyoaks and like those days, like- Reality it, stars. Yeah, it, it was huge. And it's, it's not now, but it's taken a lot of adjusting for me to kind of get on that page. Like I've got a lot of, a lot of followers on Instagram now, but even before that, when it was kind of, um, Instagram was coming into like the fray as like the main social outlet, I was, I was so dismissive of it. I was, compl- I was like, it's stupid. Like, why would you want to walk around just filming yourself? But then mm. the way that the world's gone and the way that things have developed, that is a, a key tool now to, mm. to, to stay relevant, to promoting things and all that stuff. And I've, it's taken me a, a long time to actually get on that chapter and be mm. like, okay, I, I have to utilize this. But yeah, like- but I spoke to Brooke about this because even though you're still um, young, it's almost like you're in that, you're the, the last sort of- um, the last generation. The of last like, generation yeah, yeah. of the credible sort of like serious actors who looked at it as like a craft now going into this like reality world where yeah. you were probably taught back in the day to kind of 
only, avoid that only, only show certain elements of you and only yeah. give this version of you exactly and I see it all the time with Ryan for example like whereas now in this modern day world in, uh, everyone wants to know everything, everything all the time unpolished I do, I do think you've got to be careful with that though like yeah. Like I say, I do have my boundaries in terms of what I like. I should probably do more in terms of like when I'm going for auditions, when I'm doing self tapes, I keep that very private. Like I'll mm. tell my friends and stuff, but like, I don't really put that on Instagram because I, I think it's just how I've been brought up and how I came up in the industry was like, it's quite a personal thing and it's just for the casting director. Whereas now, like I should probably utilize that more. And mm. I, I feel like I have started to use my Instagram to a, a better degree than I used to. But yeah, it's it's. I still find it quite strange. I'm still mm. like, despite the fact that I've spent my entire my entirety of my teenage and adult life on camera, I'm still not super comfortable speaking to camera myself. Mm. Like I still like, I think some because Act like, actors don't like playing themselves. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> but I feel like, like I said, the, the younger generation they've grown up doing that yeah. from being 14, 15. Whereas I've had to kind of go back and go, all oh, right, mm. I am, I, I should be able to be comfortable to do this because I've spent all this time performing. Mm. But it's not, it's not as simple as that, I don't mm. think. But I think one thing that really stands out with you, Fountain, from day one is that you're just talented. And um, <laughs> we used to call you kind of Wonder Boy, a yeah. little bit like Rick Fleish, like where you can, you can do <laughs> a little bit of everything, right? So obviously you're a great actor. You can sing. I remember you did you did a show years ago um, with uh, the girl from S Club Seven. Oh yeah, just the two of us. Just the two of us. I remember wow. watching you. You did Elvis Presley or something on there. Yeah, yeah, mate. And that was that was wild as well because that was the first time I'd kind of been taken out of the Hollyoaks situation. Because at that point, I think I was probably seventeen or eighteen, and I've been doing Hollyoaks for a long time, and I was comfortable with all this, the the staff and the crew and everybody, and that was like my little. I was like my home turf basically, mm. but then I went down to the BBC and I had to learn how to like, especially if you've done like reality TV stuff, but like putting the answer in the question and, and yeah, the question yeah. in the answer, sorry, and how to, to, to work on VTs and all that stuff. And I was at like TV center in London in a completely different scenario. But again, like at that point, I've never been phased by that stuff. Like I've, I feel like I've got more nervous and like more anxious about doing stuff after everything that's happened, which we'll move on to, like that's kind of changed my mm -hmm. mindset a little bit. And I do get like, I do get nervous now. Mm. But back then, I just took everything in my stride and I was like, okay, let's go. You what, absolutely what we got? smashed it. You had a great voice. You you were dancing. And then <laughs> like, obviously you went on to do stuff like Dancing on Ice, which you were just incredible at. That was I still cream. remember to this day, the Crimea River. Yeah. Like, um, it's a very proud routine you did. Yeah, it's a very proud we'll, moment. We'll go that. on to that even more, but you are just a, a, a talented guy and you kind of can do a little bit. You've got great rhythm. Do you yeah. remember, you, you, remember the, you just talked? You remember we bought that cajon? You, you bought this, this <laughs> you, was, you came to get it with yeah, 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 a little <laughs> shop in Eccles. You went and bought this drum and next <laughs> and it's like beatboxing. So you've always had like a, a natural kind of ability to be a bit of a chameleon, I think, into yeah. different things. Like, I think, that that I think that transfers just into, well, two things. I think where that stems from, it's like, even as a kid, I've always had a vast different groups of friends. Like, right. like I used to go, I had my school friends. I had, and I went to school in Leeds. So a lot of my friends who were at school, I didn't live near. Then I had my friends in Bradford who I lived near. Then I had my friends from football. I had my friends over in Manchester from, from drama. And I don't know whether it's a good thing or not. Like I, you, everyone kind of preaches about just be true to yourself, but I'm kind of, I adapt to where I am, whether I'm at the BAFTAs or whether I'm at, at football or, or I'm at the gym or whatever. I, I change how I behave yeah. To, yeah. to my surroundings. And like, I don't know whether that's a good thing or not, but I, I don't feel like I'm being disingenuous with, with people. I just, 
I'm quite comfortable at changing my, my spots. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, but, it's a strange but, but one. I feel really. like something you mentioned before, you mentioned before, and I remember this about you. It was your self-belief. You always backed yourself. Yeah. Like whether it be on the football pitch or whatever it was, but you had this confidence, which sometimes did borderline on arrogance, yeah. which I kind of looked up to anyway, because <laughs> I've got a little bit that I'm a locker. Yeah. But it was almost like you had this underlying sense of belief. Where did that come from? I don't really know where it stems from. Like stuff does does come like naturally to me sometimes. And I think like when you look at people like I I really look up to Jack Grealish, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like I like how, how real he is. And he he backs himself and he's like, I always believe in myself. And it, it, sometimes it does border on arrogance, but I think it has to sometimes because if you don't believe in yourself, and this is what, one thing my mom mm -hmm. always said to me, she said, if you don't believe in yourself, no one else will. I was never really pushed into doing drama or acting or any anything that I was good at and I wanted to do. Like, and listen, I, you know, how close I am with my mom. She, whether it was football or ice hockey, or I remember she took me down to audition for Sylvia Young's, like, and that's a lot of money. To, like back then, like I'm not mm -hmm. from a, a rich family or anything and like train tickets and hotels and then going there. And it was all, she just, anything I wanted to do, she pushed me to and was like, not, not pushed me to, but like, if I said, I want to do this. She'd be like, all right, well, then we'll do it. I'll do everything I can to make that possible for you. I've just always had this unwavering belief, which is, has now changed a little bit for, for obvious reasons. But I've always had this belief in myself that if I, I, I know, not necessarily how talented I am, because I do question that. And like, despite the fact that I put on this, not so much a front, but I have my serious, I'm, I'm the person that, that, that doubts myself mm. more than anybody else. But, I do have this belief that I can, if I, I, I'm very confident in not only my talent, but my, my work ethic. Like I can wholeheartedly say that m like the majority, maybe not if all of the people that I've ever worked with in any situation, whether it be dancing on ice or whether it be Hollyoaks or Coronation Street or working for Adam in <laughs> Oh My Glaze. Like if I'm given a task, I will work my absolute arse off to make it happen. Do you know what I mean? Like I, my work ethic is is unrivaled and I know that. I don't think I, I don't think I always am proactive enough sometimes. I think like the last 10 years, especially, I've kind of just sat in a bit of a slump and not, not made things happen and just kind of waited for things to come to me. But if I got a job tomorrow, no one could question like how much mm. of, I, I don't put 100% into everything. Like for example, Rain Man, I was supposed to be in that show. So basically it was me and a guy called Paul Nichols right. who unfortunately got ill just before the show. Right. So he had to pull out. Yeah. So they basically, they had two kind of big names. I don't like to call myself that, but they had two big names like leading the show. And we took over from another two actors who did the first leg. And it became, because Paul wasn't doing it, I then felt like I had to take that whole show on my shoulders. And it was, a, it was a big show. Like it was more dialogue than I've ever had to do. I was on stage for pretty much an hour and a half. Never with, heard an actor without, speak so much for Without a break, week. man. It was, it, was, it was intense. But every single show, whether, and I, I'm, a full, like, I'm a firm believer in the fact that we would go to the Lowry where there were 2,000 people. And then we'd go to another theater in Western Supermare on a Wednesday matinee when there's probably 70 people. You have to give the same level of performance when you've got 2,000 people or when, you, when you've got 10 people. Because at the same, at, in the same time, those 2,000 people have, and the, the, those 30, 30 people have paid the same amount and they expect to see the same show. You can't just, mm. you can't improve your performance when you're doing a bigger audience. It's got to be consistently 
top level performance all the time. And like, I worked my ass off. In, I worked myself into the ground. I had to take like, at one point when we were in, in Scotland at one point, I had to take three days off because I just completely lost my voice. And you saw how, how much energy I put right. into that. And you have, I feel like you have to do that. You can't just, you can't just turn up when it suits you. You have to be there like, the top level at all times. Yeah, it sounds like when, once you get an opportunity, you seize it. Yeah. But then sometimes you're not the best at creating the opportunity. Exactly, 100%. But, but talking of opportunities, and this is unheard of, by the way, that you went from Hollyoaks to Coronation Street. Yeah. Which is like going from um, Leicester City, right? <laughs> to um, Leicester. Well, yeah, Leicester's all well, right. Well, yeah, maybe. Could have said someone worse. Maybe. All right, let's say West Brom. Right? Okay, West Brom. Right? To Hope Chelsea or United. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like that's how big a move it was. And it was pretty much unheard of yeah. back then. Do you know what I mean? Because now a lot of people move around soaps yeah. from one soap to the next. Whereas back then that was like unheard of. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a credit to your work ethic and the fact that you just won best actor and everything else. Yeah. And you went in as Tommy Duckworth as the, like the legendary um, Vera and Jack, Dus the Jack Duckworth's um, grandson. Grandson, yeah. Grandson, which is a massive storyline to yeah, go in on. Yeah, wild, man. What was that moment like for you? It was interesting because I left Hollyoaks and like, I probably could have stayed there for a, for a few more years, but I got to like... I wanted to be an actor because like I said, I love the craft and I wanted to play different characters. And like, listen, like there's people who stay in, in shows for an amazing amount of time. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's just not what I wanted to do. I felt like my time was up at Hollyoaks. I was in mm -hmm. a, I was in a good place. I was 21 when I left. Yeah. And when I came out, there was all this talk of me going off to Hollywood. And I mean, I, I never said that, but I think it's just kind of a, a natural thing that the press say when someone leaves a show, them, they yeah. go, oh, yeah, they're going to try and get crack Hollywood. Don't get me wrong, I would have loved to have done that. And I kind of believed the hype a little bit and I was like, I'm going to come out of Hollyoaks and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And I went for, I auditioned for some crazy stuff. I auditioned for like Lord of the Rings and all, wow. all these mad things. And I just didn't get anything. And it was like that realization, I was like, oh shit. Like I've just spent seven years in a show thinking that I'm going to come out and I'm just going to waltz into all these jobs. Mm. And it just didn't happen like that. And I was a bit scared really because I came out and I just didn't get what I wanted to get. I ended up doing, I did a, a play in London and then I had about two years. No, I think it was maybe more before I got Coronation Street. And I was starting to panic. Like it really, the panic really set in because I was like, shit, that might, that might be it. That might be my, I might not ever get another job. Wow. But then I actually, I got a call from Phil Collinson um, who I absolutely love. And he, he wanted me to come and test for, for Coronation Street. And I spoke to my agent and like, I, to be honest at the time, I always kind of wanted to move away from soap, but we spoke and it was like, it felt like a step up yeah, really yeah. just for more viewers and more exposure. And it was such an, a, a surreal moment. Like, I mean, we told this story before about, I met Ryan at the train station and he was doing the, the screen test with me and I got there I read with Ryan and Michelle Keegan and then within a couple of weeks I started and it was just mad. I had this, it was, it was quite a bit of pressure really because I had this, I came into the show with like the Duckworth name. That's like a, a, a institution in, in British soap, but I, I absolutely loved it. Like I, I really enjoyed, it took me a while to get used to because it was completely different to Hollyoaks. I was, I was working with a lot of young people and we didn't have our own dressing rooms. We used to like muck in and like there was a boy's dressing room and a girl's dressing room yeah. and, and a green. Whereas obviously you get to Coronation Street and there's like people who've been there for 50 years. And it was kind of interesting getting used to that dynamic of stuff. But again, I just applied the same 
the same mentality that I had to work hard. And it was an eye-opener for sure. Yeah, and I think fair play to you though, Chris, because you are such a normal, like, local Bradford lad. But then to be thrown into those situations where you're in a green room with people like Bill Roach and everything else, yeah. like... Who's absolutely lovely, Yeah, you had to grow up and you had to grow up quite quickly. Yeah. And I, listen, don't get me wrong, I wasn't, I wasn't like a, a model student. No, like, I, got, I did get, I got into trouble for being late a few times. Well, you, live with, you live with me and Ryan. I did, yeah. So but I just, the thing is, one thing about me is like, <laughs> I am absolutely shambolic on a morning. Like I find it, I've got better, but I find it very difficult to wake up. Like yeah. I'm just, if you meet me on a morning, like I've just got nothing. I've got like a full zombie, like I get, get up and if people speak to me, I'm just like, like it just doesn't, I'm not good on the morning. I, I did get in, I remember getting in, into trouble. Yeah, that's part. Of, that's all part of it. I remember the first day that you walked into Ryan's house, <laughs> like it was yesterday. You walked into Ryan's house, and you you um you did a little spin on on your on the floor, on on your ass. <laughs> you sound like an absolute. And then just went, "I'm here, boys." And our Ryan just looked at me and went, "What have I done here? What have I took on here?" But then we had such a a beautiful like time, and it was great to see like you and Ryan bond as well. And yeah. I felt like you learned a lot from each other, and I think you learned Absolutely, a lot from man. Ryan as well from yeah. like living with him and everything 100%. else. I mean, it's like like you said, like I was always around Ryan, like mm. through different situations, like with football trips and soap awards and like seeing people at events and stuff. Mm. But one of the things, one of the best things I think that came out of my time on Coronation Street is that like, like Ryan's one of my, like it makes me emotional, man. Mm. Like he's like, I've got like some very close friends, but Ryan, especially over the past mm. like 10 years, We've been through so many different situations, mm. bad things that have happened to him, bad things that have happened to me. And the the bond that has forged throughout that that time, I'm so grateful. And even, even with you and Adam as well, mm. like, because I've spent so much more time around you, like with Adam and the kids and with Roman mm. and Lucy and all Part that. Part of the like, family now, aren't you? That's what I, it is. I, I, yeah. I really feel like it's, it is like my extended family. But mm. like I said, man, I, I can't like, the, the times, like, aside from my mum and, like, some of my other close friends, like, Ryan has really, really been there for me. Mm. Like, dragged me up out of, like, holes and just, yeah, I can't, I can't speak highly and, and like, yeah. I can't be, like, thankful enough for, for what came from, from getting into Coronation Street, even though that ended in absolute disaster. Mm. One of the best things that came out of that was the, the, the relationship that me and Ryan have, have got from that. Yeah, I think that's because Ryan sees the goodness in you, like all of us do, Chris, like you've got an amazing heart. And mm. and I really wanted to talk about the start of your journey, to kind of put it into perspective, like this crest of a wave that you were you were riding, mm. like going from being the star boy at Hollyoaks, winning best actor, to then going to Coronation Street, getting this massive kind of entrance as Tommy Duckworth. And then just everything else around it, Chris, you were quite like, you were really, um, I remember you were really well organized with like, your finances and mm. you had like a really solid yeah. like life, right? Yeah, I, I did. Do you know what? It's you were quite, you were quite of, smart. I've, I've Benjamin <laughs> buttoned my career basically. Yeah. Like you see a lot of actors and they will start there and then gradually will build up yeah. to get to where they want to be. Like I started there. I mean, obviously there, there is like Hollywood and yeah, yeah. movie stars, but like I started in at one of the highest points of my career. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I've kind of gone that way, yeah. really. And it's it's strange because the, despite the fact that I worked incredibly hard and like with like the long shifts on Hollyoaks and like I put everything into it. It's every every single scene I put everything into it. But 
I feel like the first, like from being 15 to being 21, 22, 23, like it was quite easy. Mm. It was quite, I, I, it was quite an easy life. Like despite the fact that my, my hours were long and I, I was doing like a, a great deal of work, I feel like it was quite easy for me. Like mm. I was, I was doing what I wanted to do. I was earning a lot of money. I had a great profile. Like I was doing great. I've done more learning on the other side of it. And like you said about like with my finances and stuff, like I'm not great really in terms of numbers and organizing stuff and being like, I'm a, I'm a shocking businessman. I'm not an entrepreneur in any way, shape or form because I never had to be. I've never like, I've never had to, to, to grind and go, right, how can I make this opportunity? Cause like that first long period of being in work, I was going to work and getting paid really well for it. So I never really had to kind of like develop that mindset of how can I make this, 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 and this happen. I never really had to do that. Whereas now I'm feeling like that's what, that's exactly what I'm having, having to do. But I've never, I, I, I've got no, no kind of point of reference to go, well, when you did this and when you did this, but my mum was like instrumental in that for me. And the one thing I've, I've got in, in terms of sense like that is I don't really spend a lot. Mm. Like if, <laughs> when I've got money, like I'll, I'll look after my friends and, but like, I mean, I'm at a point now where I have to be like frugal with my, my yeah. finances because I've, I've not got much coming in yeah, yeah. in terms of work. Like I've still got, I've still got properties. I've still got. But even like, when you were though, back then I remember you were still smart where you didn't overspend money enough. And now I just don't done. like, I just buy what I need. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, I, like obviously when I was younger, I'd buy a few random like flashy bits here and there, yeah. but like, I don't, I didn't, I wasn't bothered about going and buying a mad car or a mad watch yeah. or all this stuff. Like I just, I, I never really overspent and went, went like super flashy with things, yeah, yeah. which, which has kind of served me well really over, over the time. Yeah, but yeah, like, I, like I said, my, my mum was instrumental in that and she was really great in like, we, we got an accountant and we made sure that everything I had, I didn't owe anything to anybody. Like I didn't, I just, I didn't have to, I wasn't buying things on finance. So it was just yeah. like, everything I've got, I've got, and I don't have to worry about paying this person or that person for stuff. Yeah, your mum was, uh, your mum, listen, your relationship with your mum is incredible. Linda's just oh, the best. Just, and I, I want to talk about it in more detail, but let's go to the life-changing moment for you. Mm -hmm. Which one? Oh God. Yeah, there's been, there's been, a, there's been two big ones, yeah. haven't there, really? But obviously you're in Connie Street, you're at the mm -hmm. peak of your fame, um, you're a credible actor and you're really talented. And then this moment happens in the press where mm. basically you pretty much get cancelled overnight. Yeah, but that I think that was before before cancelling was was a thing, really. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, look, you know the story inside out. Like, I've never shied away from the fact that I shouldn't have been there doing what I was doing, especially considering the fact I was on a primetime ICV mm. show. But if I'm interested in something, like I go fully into it, yeah, whether it be mountain biking or music production equipment or DJing. Like if I really like something, I'll go all in. Yeah. And I remember like, it was at a time when Don't Flop was absolutely massive, this this whole battle rap thing. And I, listen- I, I was with you, mate, exactly, in the house. Yeah. We were watching it on the videos all yeah, the time. Yeah. These guys rap, basically, Don't Flop was like a bunch of like local rappers, right? Yeah. Well, from like national, they were all over the place. Yeah. And I loved it. Like it's an art form, especially. I mean, listen, if you if you look at it, and you have if you've never seen anything like Don't Flop or any kind, you've never seen a battle rap before. You're gonna watch it and go, Jesus, like what they're saying is horrible. Mm. But 
in that culture, you're kind of trying to be as outrageous as possible, but then not just the outrageous bits, like the, the, the actual artistry of it and the rhyming schemes and the, the flows and all that stuff. And I, I've been a huge hip hop fan since I was 12, 11, 12 years old. I had like, I used to listen to Eminem on the bus. I used to, I was massively into grime and garage and like, I, I've got a real respect and, a, and an affinity for that, that, that genre of music and, and the way it's made and the way it's developed. But unfortunately for me, like I actually reached out to one of the guys who was on, on Don't Flop and I like to think I can rap a little bit. You could rap. <laughs> I mean- We used to battle all the time. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really do it anymore for, for obvious <laughs> yeah. reasons, but- But that's like, what we used to do after a night out. We'd yeah. come in, we'd put a beat on and we start rapping. <laughs> Honestly, that's all we do. Yeah, and you were sick. Yeah. You were Listen, good. I used to, I used to sit and I used to yeah. write rhymes and stuff. And yeah, I've got yeah. some some stuff that I've, I'm still quite proud yeah. of. But but like I said, part of that culture though is saying the most outrageous thing possible yeah. to someone with no like meaning behind it. It's like you see it when it's a release. Like it's like you listen to like I said to, to reference Eminem again. You listen to some of the stuff he says. I remember he used to do them skits on his album, and he was like, "Obviously, I'm saying these things. That doesn't mean I'm going to go and." I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kill my mum and put her in the, the boot of my car and throw her off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. It's just a way of ex expressing myself and what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And like, listen, I've, that's, I've not been through anything as, as bad as what he went through. But yeah, so I kind of like got my rapper's head on and spoke to this guy and he was like, oh, look, there's a, there's a studio where like local MCs come down and everyone has a smoke and we put beats on and they freestyle. And I was like, that sounds great. So I remember, I remember I went down there a couple of times and there was all, there was some really talented MCs there. Mm. And I was kind of in awe of it. And I was like, I can do that. I want to like get involved. And the way it happened was like, I had some kind of sense in the fact that I was like, well, I can't just, I can't just do this like as me. I have to like, so there's this mask and they put this mask on and I was like, oh, now I can, I can kind of like get involved. Mm. And the way it was kind of portrayed in the press was that like there was there was this this masked rapper that everybody was trying to find out who it was. No one knew who it was until it went in the press. Mm. And it basically made it out as though I was part of this like dark subculture, mm. like writing lyrics about violence towards women and all this stuff. And listen, like I, I I've held my hands up plenty of times and I apologized. But to put across like it wasn't that's not me as a person. Do you know what I mean? I was there. And there was character. All, all these things going on. I was listening to these people. And I, so I'm, I'm going away. And then I came back. I was like, right, I'm going to get involved. And it wasn't, none of it was written. None of it was like, oh, I've, I've sat and thought this out. Like some of the stuff I said was absolutely absurd. Yeah. It was terrible. It didn't rhyme. It didn't make any sense. Yeah. But obviously some of the bits that were, that were, were, were put out there were, were horrendous. So I look yeah. back at that now and like, it makes me feel sick. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like I, I there's no, there's no, there's no apologizing that kind of makes that right. But when you put it in context, like you look at certain people who've, who've done certain things. And Chris, let me, let, let me put it into context. I know, I understand the rapper's world. I understand. And if you understand that, you know completely 
that it is in context yeah. of what you're doing as a character in a freestyle. Yeah. That you say things that don't even make any sense. Mm -hmm. You just do things that rhyme. It's coming off the top of your head. It's not your day. thoughts. Yeah. It's just like, what can rhyme with that word? Does it? Well, it's, is it going to get a reaction? Exactly. And, and it's nothing to do with your personal your viewpoints. However, I can also understand from someone in the mainstream Abs society absolutely. why they, absolutely. they might, if they don't know that, they might go, why is Tommy Duckworth yeah. coming out with those kind of words? Oh, like, it, and it's... It makes me it makes me deeply, deeply ashamed to to see that stuff and to mm. to think about what I was saying. And li listen, I no one is responsible for that other than me. Do you know mm. what I mean? But what comes off the back of that is I was absolutely destroyed by mm. the press to the point where, and this is something that, that still kind of sits with me. Like my family's always been incredibly proud of me. My, my mm. grandma before she passed away, my granddad, my mum, and it feels like I let them down in that situation. And I've had this conversation with my mom and she's like, I, that's not how I feel. But I feel like I was kind of flying the flag for my family. And then all this happens and it kind of, listen, I'll never forget there were, there were reporters like chasing my granddad down the street when he's going for his bread on the morning saying, what would his grandma think about this? And they, they were outside my mom's house. They were going to my ex-girlfriend's family. And it's just like, at the end, listen, I can't like, I can't, say that there's anything right with what I did. But I was like, I was blown away by the reaction from it. Like I knew there was gonna be a reaction obviously because it was it was a big deal at the time, but it was just- The press was basically so blood, didn't it? It was mental. Like I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. Like I, I, I can kind of accept it because I'm in the public eye and I've fucked up basically. And so I can take that on the chin, even though it was dramatically like, like horrendously difficult for me. Like it's not a woe is me thing. Like I should accept it because I, I messed up. So you got to deal with the repercussions. But when you're going after my granddad and after my mom and my family, I was just like, oh my God. I was like, what, what is going on here? Mm. And I just, that singular week in August, 2013, just blew my entire life apart. Like every, all the foundations of what I built as a career just completely came crashing down. And it was the start of a real, downward spiral in terms of my mental health, my confidence, my, just everything basically. So what actually happened, Chris? So you obviously lost your job at Corrie straight away. Mm -hmm. And then what was the rest of the industry like towards you? Could you just not get any opportunities? Would you just, did you feel canceled? At the time, I didn't realize the implications it was going to have. I thought like- obviously, It'll cool down. Yeah, I thought so. And like, obviously I lost my job with, with Coronation Street, which was a, a huge blow, but I thought, okay, this will settle down. I've done something wrong. I, but for me, it's like, obviously what I said, like I've said before, was was absolutely abhorrent and, and wrong. But I never actually, I didn't do anything illegal. I didn't kill anybody. I never hurt anybody. Like I didn't, you see some people who, who've got away with some things mm. and are still at the top of the game working. Mm. And, and like, whether I dealt with it the right way in terms of not doing any, cause I did my apology. And then the the strategy was just don't say anything else. I sometimes look back on that and think, was that a right approach? Should mm -hmm. I should I have come out more? Should I have been more vocal about things and, and taken it a different route? But like that's that's happened now. Mm -hmm. So I can't I can't change that. But it was crazy because I didn't I didn't know what to do. I didn't know I I did think I thought that after a certain amount of time it would it would calm down. But then 
I found myself in situations where I, I was getting auditions. I was going for things. I remember, I'll never forget. There was one audition that I went for and I went down to London and I met with this director and honestly, it was one of the, probably one of the best auditions I've ever done. Like I sat with this guy for like an hour before we even read any script and we got right into it in terms of character and the, the, the choices and everything. And then I did this scene and it, it just was, went fantastic. And I came out of the audition. I was like, I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm, I must, I must've got that. Wow. I didn't hear anything for like maybe a month and I called my agent and I was like, did anything, did we heard anything from, from that audition? And she came back to me and she was like, oh yeah, the director loved you, but the, the producers thought it was too soon after everything. And I was like, oh, okay. So this is still having an effect. So it's literally four weeks now until my first ever sprint triathlon. And I have been putting the work in. It's not been easy, but I feel like I've come out of my comfort zone. I've been swimming, biking and running. And I've just been working on my transitions. And don't get me wrong, I'm not the finished article, but I feel proud already that I'm going to cross that finish line on the 29th of July and I'm going to be doing my absolute best to get my best possible time. But I just want to say thank you to everybody who's been on this journey with me. So many of you have been tagging me in all your stories, documenting your journey. And I can tell that so many of you have just, just seized this opportunity. So I can't wait to see you there in Sunderland. We're all going to be there together. We're going to cross the finish line together. And I just want to say, keep doing your thing and make sure you finish strong. I'm going to be finishing up documenting the sprint triathlon on this podcast, but you can catch up on my journey and all of my training over on Instagram. So make sure you head over there, um, scott.thomas. And yeah, keep tagging me your stories, guys. And let's do this together. So obviously your confidence has been knocked, your whole world's been rocked. Mm -hmm. But one thing with you, Fountain, that I do look up to is that, all right, you can visibly see that you're probably not the same person that you were, were when you were in your prime or mm -hmm. anything else, but you've still managed to stay stay here, if I'm honest. Yeah. Because if anyone, I'm not, I'm not, I hope you don't mind saying this, but if anyone else went through what, what you went through, it'd be, it'd be tough for them to see a way out of it. Yeah, Whereas with I mean, you, Fountain, yeah, you, you've somehow managed to bounce back, right? I'm mm -hmm. not saying it's been a straight bounce back. No way. But, no the per way. but the person who just walked down that stairs before is the strongest I've ever seen you mm. before. And I can see that you're coming back. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I think like, look, I've been, I've been right at the bottom. Yeah. But I feel like you learn your biggest lessons when you're at the bottom. You don't learn anything when you're doing really, really so well. So true. And so like I said, don't get me wrong. Like I'm not Mr. Positive all the time, mm. but what I have learned is that I've developed a level of resilience that is untouchable now. Like <laughs> the amount of stuff that's happened, you can just keep throwing it at me and I'm just going to keep getting up because th there's no other option. I don't think like, I remember reading a book years and years ago, the, the Alchemist by Pablo Coelho. And there's, there's one passage in that, in that book that stuck with me throughout my, my life really. It says, it's the possibility of a dream coming true that makes life worth living. And if you've got everything, if you've got everything you want, then where's the, where's the get up and go? Where's the, the inspiration? Where's the, where's, where do you find the drive to keep going? Whereas I've still got dreams. I've still got dreams that, that I want to fulfill. Mm. And no matter how much I kind of get knocked down, whether it be with my health or whether it be with the press or anything like that, 
the the own the the most important thing that I've learned is you have to keep going, and it see it seems it seems obvious, but you don't always feel like keeping going. Like I don't always feel like keeping going, but in the in the the past few years, like I've, I've developed and I've kind of forged this like ability to like even with with anything like with like last night for example I had a lovely day out with my mom I had, a, I had a roast and everything we got home we were gonna watch a film and I was like I need to get a run in I need to and I, like everything in me was going nah nah it's fine just chill just chill and I was like nope and I've got I've developed that switch to be able to go get up go and do it do you know what I mean and that's 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 one of the biggest lessons that I think I, I've learned it's so easy to say that you need to go through the tough times to, to to become the person that you're meant to be. But it's so true. Like some of my darkest moments in my life mm -hmm. have forced me to grow into the person that I am now. And if we did have it all plain sailing, we wouldn't necessarily get to where we need to be. And it's funny you say that before. It's like I, I, one of my businesses, um, Food Forks, as a startup, we kind of went, grew so quickly. Yeah, And it was a bit of a Hollywood like kind of rise to... Just, I remember, I remember Hollywood it just rise. went from there to there with yeah. you. And it's almost like now we're having to go back through the whole startup thing again. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes when it is too good to be true, there's foundations that need to be laid beforehand. Exactly. And it seems like now, maybe, not, I'm not saying you did rise too early, but maybe- But maybe potentially. Maybe there was lessons that you needed to learn now mm -hmm. as, as a human, as tough as it is that you've had been made, by the way, because it's not been easy. Like no. you've had it so difficult. But I can see now, like I said before you came on this podcast, I went, one thing about you, Chris, now is you are so resilient and things come your way and you just seem to be like, right, okay, how are we going to deal with this now? You've got to, that, I mean, that's it. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I do, I have I have my own moments, like when I'm on my own and, I, and I've got things going on and, but, and you just, every now and then it just kind of hits you like a ton of bricks and the anxiety's going and I'm just like, oh my God and all this. But through going through what I've been through, it just becomes like you kind of just get a natural sense of like, well, all right, well, we've got to keep going. Because do you, do you, I don't know if you're a little bit like me, Fowling, but I can always feel and see my potential. I might doubt myself, exactly, and I might have those that's moments so true, you know. where that's, that's, I feel on. a bit of like imposter syndrome. But deep down, I go, yeah, but I know it's that what. belief that we were talking about yeah. before. Like that belief used to sit there, like fully on fire, going, "Bosh, mm. we're here. We're going to do this, that, and all the other." that fire's definitely shrunk, but it's still there. It's still lit. It might be a little pilot light, but it's still, mm. it's still there. And so, like I said, that like, I've had, I've had times where I've, I've really sat down with myself and got in my thoughts and questioned, like, do I just give this up? Do I just give up acting, choose a new career path and just crack on? But it's impossible. It's impossible because I don't feel like I've achieved what I can achieve. And so, I'm not going to give up and I'm going to keep going and I'm going to keep going for auditions. If I don't get it, I don't get it. I've just got to keep going. I've got to keep working. Look, even after, after I had the stroke, which I'm sure we'll move on to, like my speech coming back and all this stuff, I started going back to class. Like I've not been to class for, for years. And I, I sat down with a friend of mine and we, we had a talk and he's very blunt. And he's not one of them people that you, that's going to sympathize with you. And that, like, he'll sell you exactly what it is. And he's, we were talking about this and I was kind of being a bit like depressed and like, so I was like, oh, I'm not getting this. And I'm not, and he went, he says, right, we well, you know what you do. You make it impossible for a casting director to not give you that part. You make it impossible. You blow every single other person out of that water and you make it, 
make it yours. And that stuck with me and it rang around in my head and I was like, right, okay. So I was like, right, I started looking up acting classes and I went back to class and it's definitely helped me. It's definitely helped me like stay mm -hmm. sharp, like between like auditions and self tapes and stuff. So I'm not going to give up until, until I get there. And mm -hmm. I, I, I can't, and whatever gets thrown in, in front of me, I'll just jump over it and keep, keep, keep going. Yeah. And I feel like this fighting mentality you've got now, I feel like it's kind of new. And I think that's obviously come because recently, Chris, like you recently had a stroke, right? Yeah which I know you're going to explain more details now, but I know that you woke up one morning and you couldn't speak. Is that right? Yeah. So I got to a point like, so I don't know if you saw like probably 2021, like with the lockdowns and everything, I did like this whole like lifestyle adjustment where I started eating really well and I lost a load of weight and I started running and I started journaling and just got into a really good frame of mind. That's kind of gone up and down since then. But I think by having a year of doing that, I developed the tools to kind of, to look after myself properly, mentally and, and physically. And so I'm probably at the moment fitter than I've, than I've ever been. And at that, when I had the stroke, I was fitter than I've ever been. I was training all the time, I was running. And then one day in August last year, I went out the day before, did a, did a 5K, it was really hot. And it made it so weird. I can remember everything that happened. Like I had a Chinese the night before cause I'd done a big run and I was like beat a PB or something. I was like, I'm gonna have a Chinese. And then, went to bed and then the next morning I woke up and my phone was ringing as it usually is on a morning. It's my mom saying hello. And I picked the phone up and I told you I'm not great on a morning, but I picked the phone up and I could understand what my mum was saying and I could kind of get little bits of conversation out, but I just, there was something that wasn't quite right. And I was like, like, this is weird. I went, mom, I'll call you back. And then I was like, that was weird. I was like, I must just be tired. So I anyway, got up and even when I wasn't speaking, I was walking around. I was like, this, I was like, I don't feel right. It was like something not quite right here. And I started trying to say things. So I was like, there was a towel over the back of the door and I was looking at that. And in my head, like my internal like dialogue was, was perfect and was fine. It was going, that's a towel, towel, towel. So I was like trying to say towel. And I was like, it's like 12, 12, 12. I was like, I was like, what is going on? I'm looking at TV and I was like trying to say television. I couldn't say television. I was like, I was like, this is weird. I, I was laughing at it. I was kind of, I was like, I just woken up and just forgotten how to speak. I was like, this is mental. So I called my mum back. And like I said, like I wasn't completely unable to speak, but mm. it was, it was just very a bizarre situation. And I, I, I rang my mum and I was like, look, I, I was like, I'm really sorry. I'm gonna you're gonna find this really strange, but I can't speak properly. She was like, "What do you mean?" I was like, "Well, I can't. I can't get my words out." And she was like, "Well, you need to ring the hospital then." I was like, "No, I'm not ringing the hospital." I was like, "I'm fine," because because every other facet of my body, my brain, my legs, everything was. I didn't feel ill. I just felt mm. something wasn't right. So I was like, "I don't need to ring the hospital." I was like, "I'm gonna go to the gym. I'll have a coffee." And anyway, so I was about to go out to go to the gym, and I was just like something's telling me I need to, I'm going to call the hospital. So I rang him up and that's when it all kind of went a bit tits up really. Like I spoke to the guy on the, on the, the, the phone and he was like, what are your symptoms? And I couldn't tell him, even though in my head, I had everything prepared that I was going to say, but I couldn't make it work. It was like my, my, my brain and my mouth weren't connected properly. So I, then I started panicking then. And I was like, I was like, I can't, I can't speak properly. And he was like, well, 
asking me all these questions and I was like, I'm really, I, I, the thing is, it's weird. I couldn't answer his questions, but I was able to say, I can't answer what, what you're asking me. It's really difficult for me to speak. I could say that, but then he asked me for my address and I, I, knew, I know my address, but I couldn't give him my address. Mm. And I was, at this point, I was just like, this is, this is really strange. So eventually I found a, a letter and it had my, my postcode on it, which I could, I could read. And um, so anyway, they sent an ambulance for me, took me to hospital. And um, then it all became really dramatic. Like I, I remember being in the hospital and at this point I re I'd realized I couldn't read aloud. So this, this the nurse came over and she was like, can you read, can you read this, this sign to me? And obviously for me, from being an actor since I was 15, like reading scripts and reading aloud has been something that comes very easy to me. And I started to try and read this, this paragraph. And even though I could read it perfectly in my head, I could not say it. And I was stumbling and stuttering and I just started crying. I was just like, what, what's going on? What is happening? And she said, you're presenting symptoms of a stroke. And that just like just fully pulled the rug out from underneath me. And I was like, surely not. Like I'm 34 years old at the time. I was like, I can't have had a stroke. So they gave me um, a massive dose of aspirin, which is a, a blood thinner to stop. Because if, if for people who don't, don't know what happens when you have a stroke, it's a blood clot that gets to your brain. Right. And the obviously if the blood can't get to certain parts of your brain, if, you, if your brain doesn't get oxygen for a certain amount of time, it, it instinctively starts to die basically. And so they gave me aspirin to kind of flush whatever blood clots were in my brain. It's, it's still at this point, they did not confirmed it. So they were like, we're going to keep you in hospital overnight. So actually, your Ryan came down, Lloyd came down. And um, so they did an MRI scan. And the first MRI scan came back and they went, oh, it's fine. I was like, oh, amazing. But then I was like, well, but why can't I speak? Anyway, they decided to keep me in overnight. They did another, another MRI scan. And then the next, I stayed in the hospital overnight. And then the, the, the doctor came to me at about lunchtime the day after. And he was like, um, you've had what is called a transient ischemic stroke, which is a TIA, which is a mini stroke. And I just, I felt like my life was over, man. Like I, at that point, like I didn't, like now I know a lot more about strokes and I've been doing a bit of work with the Stroke Association and stuff. But I was just like, that's it. I was like, is my, is my speech ever going to come back? Because at this point I, st I was still struggling Jeez. really badly to speak. And I can't, it's a really lonely feeling because I know perfectly what I want to say, but I can't articulate myself mm. to you. And it's like, I could see like when I was speaking to Ryan and to the doctors and stuff, they were like, what, what are you trying to say? And it, it was, it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. So what, what did, did they think brought that on Chris? Well, subsequently I found out since then. Go on. But, so they kept me in hospital for a bit and then they decided to move me to the Royal London, which has got a specialist stroke ward. So that night they, I'd, I'd been on this ward with all these people and like, I think it was like two o'clock in the morning, they moved me to this other hospital and they put me like in like a holding, a holding room just when it was just the first time that I'd been on my own without anybody around, none of my friends, none of, none of the other nurses. And I fell apart, man, like completely I was like, my, my life's over. Like, this is, is it going to come back? Like, is it going to get worse? Am I going to have another stroke? Like I was all, all these questions, but the, the care that I received at the Royal London was incredible. They put me on the, this stroke ward and I just like looked after, like, you can't imagine after all that. So I came, came out of hospital and then that's when the, all the tests started to see like what had happened. 
because it, it can be from a lot of different things, a stroke, bad cholesterol and like heart defects, which is what eventually it turned out to be. So I went, I went for, I was in and out of hospital all the time for tests on my heart, tests on my blood, test, just test like constant testing because I'm so young, it's quite not normal that this, that this had happened. Um, so eventually after all these tests, they found that I had like quite a, a sizable hole in my heart, no way. which could be, could be from birth. It could be developed. Cause I, I was like, Oh my God. When the, when the guy told me, he was like, you've got this hole in your heart. I was like, shit. And he was like, you know what? He said, it's actually a lot more common than people think. I think like 30% of people have a hole in the heart, but a lot of them will go through their entire life and never have anything happen. And you, you just kind of live your life. Mm -hmm. But what happened to me was this, this hole, a blood clot got through the hole and went straight up to my brain. And this is where like, it sounds, it sounds mental to say that I was lucky, but depending, obviously you, different parts of your brain control different parts of your body. So the, I think it was the left-hand side where my, my, my blood clot went to. And basically what happened is because it wasn't a major stroke, like a major stroke is where the clot gets stuck for a long period of time mm. and that kind of like devastating effects. Like you, you could lose the, the use of your arm, you could lose, like the, your face can drop. Like, like I suffered with, so I found out recently, well, when I came out of hospital that not being able to speak properly after a stroke is, uh, is called aphasia. And there's obviously there's levels of it. And I was very lucky that mine was quite low level and my, my speech came back quite quickly afterwards. I mean, I had to see a, a speech therapist for, for a couple of months afterwards. And I, I'm still not, I, I know that I'm not hundred percent. Like a lot of people would never, never realize that I've, that I've had a stroke and that I've suffered with aphasia, but I feel it. And like, I feel it, I, I still find it like a little bit difficult to read. I can now, and I, I, I can st speak well and I can articulate myself properly, but there are times where I start to stumble over my words, usually when I'm tired and stuff, but it is, it's something that I'm, that I'm still kind of dealing with. And what, you'll always have that for the rest of your life or? It's, it depends really. I mean, they say like after six months, that's about as much as you're going to recover, but I still feel like I'm, I'm recovering more. Mm. Um, it sounds like no matter how tough it's been now, been in the past, you are now kind of exactly where you need to be. Yeah. And I already know, for example, you've already had some exciting auditions coming through. It's starting mm -hmm. to happen now. Yeah. Talk, talk me through some of the auditions that have been coming through now. And you're, <laughs> in, you're just before the stroke, you're in the runnings for a massive Netflix show. Yeah, I've been, do you know what? It's, I feel like I'm starting to get closer and closer to, to landing something that I, that I really want to do. It's a tough time, man. Like we've, like the, the kind of, like the boost that came after COVID and it, everyone was making stuff and there was loads of stuff going on. I mean, Unfortunately, I didn't manage to land anything at that point. But that's kind of, it's kind of died out a little bit now, but there are still some really amazing things coming in, especially mm. like with all the streaming services there are now, like mm. you've got Disney, you've got Apple, you've got Netflix. And I think I'm just just keeping my fingers crossed every time. Man. Like I, there was a period of time where I wasn't getting things and I was starting to not take my own advice and I was starting to get despondent. But, Do you know what though, Chris? Don't keep your fingers crossed, make it happen. Yeah. I think that's the difference this time. And I think in the acting world, it's quite easy, isn't it? To kind of, not easy, but it's like almost the way it's meant to be. You kind of wait for the opportunity to come to you yeah. and, and wait for that phone call or whatever. Whereas with you now, I think yeah. you've got that fighting mentality. Go and barge it's, down it's, those it's doors. It's so funny, man. Like, 
people have said it to me before in terms of like writing something yeah. for myself. Create your own opportunities. Exactly. But I think there's so many, like when I actually take a step out of myself and I look at what's like my life and the things that have happened to me, like mm. we didn't really touch on like mm. dancing on ice and stuff, but like performing at like, MEN Arena, Wembley, thousands of people doing figure skating of all things. Like I never imagined that happening to me. And then just all these, these events that have happened throughout my life, like whether I actually write something in terms of a story of what's happened to me, or even just I use the emotion and the situations Elements. and just, just take things out. Cause I've experienced a lot. I mean, despite I feel, I'm starting yeah. to feel a little bit older now, like my, my beard's going a bit gray and I'm 35. Like I'm still quite young in terms of, being an actor, like I still feel like I've got a lot to offer. Um, it's frightening. People like Gerard Butler and all that, they didn't get started till they were very young. I know, yeah. I like, mean, that gives me a massive amount of hope. Do you know oh, what I mean? 100% and Morgan Freeman and all those kind of people. Yeah. Chris, you are unbelievably talented. Like probably one of the most talented people I know. And in the acting space as well, every time, every now and then, I don't see it often because you don't really show me that side to you anymore. Mm. But when I do see you like, or a bit of a video or whatever else, I'm like, this guy is good. And the way that you treat acting like a craft and a skill, mm. I think, is admirable. And I think you should lean into that as much as possible. Never Absolutely. give up. Never give up and on it's, that. It's just like, like you were saying as well, like using the platform. Like I've been very fortunate. Like I raised quite a, a good amount of money for the Stroke Association, which was, I was so proud of, man. Like I, I can't, I can't like stress that enough, how mm. proud I was of, of, of doing the marathon. C considering eight months before, how long was it? August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April. Eight months before I did the marathon, I had a stroke. Wow. And like, because I've got this mindset now of, okay, something else has happened. We get up and we keep going. Like sometimes I need to kind of just step outside of that and just look what at achieved. what I've achieved. And I'm, I, I'm not someone who does that very often. Like I just, like I say, I've just got this mentality now of just moving forward and just keep going, which is great. But sometimes... My mum says it to me and my friends say it to me, like, I just forget. And that when I actually look at what's happened and look how far I've come from not being able to speak to being able to sit and do a, a, a massive a hour, hours long podcast and being able to articulate myself properly, sat in that, that hospital bed by myself, wondering if I was ever going to be able to speak properly again to where I'm at now. It's a, it's a massive deal. Do you know what I mean? And I am, I am, I am massively proud of myself. I, I, I'm proud of you as well, mate. I think like it's these moments like today, little milestones where you use them as momentum mm. and as fuel to go on to the next thing and everything else. And it ties in with the name of the podcast. It is learning as you go because you, that's the only way you can do it. Obviously you can sit and you can study for something, but until a situation happens and then you have to adapt and be like, okay, well now I need to do this. Now I need to go to speech therapy. Now I need to get a training program for a marathon and just need to start like learning how to hydrate myself and he's learning as I go. And I, yeah. I think I'll, I'll continue to do that for, for as long as I live, yeah. to be honest. And I think sometimes we wait for like massive curveballs in life to come and test us when sometimes it's good to go and test yourself and, exactly. and like push yourself out of your comfort zone. And I mean, I've, I've even like, I got a real perspective when I came out of, I remember coming out of hospital with my mum. And we went to the Blind Beggar pub in London. I didn't have a beer because I was just had a stroke. So I had a non-alcoholic lager. And I remember just sitting there <clears throat> thinking, I remember look, there was like a big, um, there was like this massive tree that was like over this beer garden we were sat in. And I remember just looking up at it and just, it gave me a new sense of perspective in terms of life. Like this stroke, if that blood clot had gone to a different part of my brain or if it had been bigger, I could have died or I could have 
completely lost my speech or it could have been so much worse. Like the, there's people that I've met who've, who've suffered strokes that have got absolutely like really devastating symptoms from it. And I feel really lucky. And it, it kind of gave me a new sense of, of purpose because I just embrace everything now. Ooh. Like I, I embrace everything. Like that could have been so much worse that I feel like I owe it to myself that I have to grab everything with both hands. Like I, I started learning Spanish. I've started Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And even though it's it's not always it's not always like sunshine and roses and everything's amazing. I do have my times when I'm I'm really struggling and I'm I'm I battle with my depression and stuff like that. But I, like I said, I owe it to myself to just to enjoy life to the absolute maximum because it can it can be changed and it can go like that. So I feel like I say, it's, it's, it's something I owe to myself to, to, to be positive, to be present and just, just take it by the horns. And on that note, what a great <laughs> way to end the podcast, man. That is the shit right there. Honestly, Fountain, man. I'm so proud of you, mate. Come here. <laughs> Do you know what? That was just so beautiful to see Chris just regaining that lust for life that I think he lost for so long. And I was around when he got pretty much canceled and his whole life came tumbling down. And it wasn't easy to watch. And I think we need to learn a lot from this whole cancel culture that is really promoted in today's society. Chris is a lovely human being and, and he didn't deserve what he got. Yes, he made a mistake, but it's just so good to see him now coming back strong. He's even just overcome a stroke and he's running marathons now. He's just got that energy and he's so talented. And I'm predicting seeing him in bright lights one day and on that big screen. So Chris, if you're listening, keep doing your thing, mate. And thank you for joining me in the studio. I also want to say thank you to you for listening, subscribing, reviewing wherever you listen to your podcast. It means a lot. You've been so pivotal in this podcast doing so well. So I just want to say thank you. We're going to take a little short break over the next couple of weeks because we've got something big coming your way. Uh, I can't give too much away now, but make sure you stay tuned for that. But yeah, continue to tag me on Instagram as well. I love seeing all your takeaways from the podcast. Stay tuned. A couple of weeks time, something special is coming your way. But until then, thank you for always supporting the podcast and I will see you very soon.